Section 32 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Evidence from the Life Histories of Insects, Part 1. When the development of an animal or plant is duly studied, one or two chief aspects of such a subject fail to be considered by the biologist. Either the young organism has been converted directly into the likeness of its parent, or it has assumed the parental form indirectly and through a series of transformations more or less distinctly marked. In other words, the young form has emerged upon the stage of life in the guise of its parent, or it has appeared first in a shape and under an appearance not recognizable as belonging to the race it has sprung from. In the latter case, changes of greater or less extent convert the young being into the likeness of its progenitors. And when such transformations occur in the life history of an animal or plant, it is said to undergo metamorphosis. Everyone, for instance, knows that the butterflies of the garden do not emerge from the egg as winged insects, whilst common information is able to assert that they pass through the larval or grub stage and also through the chrysalis form before becoming the perfect insects. So also the flies begin their life as maggots, and the bees and beetles with other insects exhibit like stages to the butterflies in the course of their development. Furthermore, a frog, as we have seen, practically begins life as a fish, breathing first by external and then by internal gills. Sooner or later, however, limbs are developed, the gills are replaced by lungs, the tail disappears, and the tailless condition of the frog race is finally assumed with its emergence upon the land. Insects and frogs, not to speak of other animals, such as crustaceans, whose history has been already discussed in a previous chapter, are therefore said to undergo metamorphosis. Sundry questions not unnaturally rise in the mind which attentively consider such phenomena in the animal world. Firstly, there is the plain question, why do some animals undergo metamorphosis and others not? Then, secondly, may be asked, what is the meaning of metamorphosis, or more primarily, can any meaning be assigned to this process? As we have frequently had occasion to point out, such questions receive no aid or solution from that philosophy which maintains, as an article of unquestioning faith, that the living belongings of this world came forth fashioned in all their excellence, or, it may be added, in all their frequent and apparent imperfections, at the behest of some sudden creative fiat. There is no need to assume development at all on this hypothesis of things, which for the man of science has been slain long ago, though traces of its influence are not unknown in regions removed from the active currents and tides of culture. On the reverse side of matters stands the theory broadly denominated evolution, which, seeing the promise of reading a past and progressive history in the developments which pass in panoramic review before our eyes today, asserts that a law of progress has guided, and still guides, life's courses and ways. On this theory, we can understand why development takes place, namely, because it is a law of life, that the progress and growth of the race should be represented in and carried out through its individual histories. And we can also conceive why development should run in the grooves marked out so conspicuously in many life histories, such as those of insects and crustaceans. This latter fact is explicable when it is repeated that we see in an animal's early growth the lines and stages along which the development of its race has passed. 
By the very idea of evolution, we expect variety and change to be represented in the development of living beings, for such change is the one great condition which has made this universe what it is. Agreeing as to the main reasons for development and its ways, we should find little difficulty in comprehending how these ways and paths have been followed. As we have already impressed upon the reader, the picture is not always clearly limbed, and its outlines are often meager enough. Still, what we do see and know of its form convinces us of the correctness of the broad deductions of evolution, which deductions being scorned and denied leave the whole course of nature a tissue of inexplicable absurdities. In the present instance, dealing with the meanings of metamorphosis, we intend to direct attention to certain details which, for lack of space, have been omitted in previous chapters, and which, dealing with matters of special interest to the student of evolution, may, logically enough, claim attention in a separate section. Such subjects as the general nature of metamorphosis, and how that process is modified by surroundings and other circumstances, as well as the narration of some life histories which illustrate very aptly the general conclusions of evolution, may therefore fitly engage our consideration in the course of our developmental studies. Firstly, then, the general question of metamorphosis demands notice. Whilst it is perfectly true that, broadly speaking, only such animals as insects, crustaceans, and frogs, exhibiting very marked and apparent change of form, in passing from the young to the adult stage, may be said to undergo metamorphosis, it would be far more logical, because more true, to assert that the histories of all living beings, without exception, illustrate the process in question. This remark has been made in reference to the developments we have already studied. For example, there is not, after all, such an immense difference between the development of an insect and that of a fish or, for that matter, between that of a frog and of man himself, when the facts of development are fairly faced and duly understood. No animal or plant is suddenly transformed into the perfect likeness of its parent. On the contrary, it has not merely to grow, but it has to be formed from that which is formless, to become organized by the development of that which has no structure at all, and to advance along lines of development during which it successively assumes a transient likeness to the forms of other and lower beings. Thus a quadruped, whilst undergoing development within its parent's body, in reality passes through as strange and startling a metamorphosis as does a frog outside its parent's body, and external to its egg likewise. A quadruped is really at first like a fish and reptile. So alike are the young of all vertebrates in their early stages, that recognition of the nature of any particular form may be an impossibility. Metamorphosis thus occurs in quadrupeds as in frogs, in snails and oysters as in insects. The great and prevailing difference simply exists in the fact that the insect or frog leaves the egg in an imperfectly developed condition, and at an early stage of its career, passing the remainder of its development as an independent being. In the quadruped or fish, or in the bird and reptile, the young animal does not quit the parent body or egg at such an early period, but remains within its primitive shelter to undergo its full development, or at any rate to emerge upon the world of active life tolerably well prepared for the struggle of living and being. Even amongst the quadrupeds, as in well-nigh every other group of animals, 
and as in the plant world likewise there may be great differences in the degree and stage of perfection at which the young organism is ushered into active or independent existence no better instance of this could be found than in the case of the kangaroos and their allies in which as lower quadrupeds internal development ceases at a very early period compared with that at which higher quadrupeds are born the newly born young of a kangaroo which when full grown stands six or seven feet high measures about one inch in length at birth and resembles a little red worm much more nearly than a kangaroo at birth it is transferred to the characteristic pouch of the mother wherein for weeks it is protected and nourished by the milk secretion if we consider the effects of growth on such an organism we may well feel assured that a metamorphosis of very complete kind must be required to transform the imperfect and feeble being just described into the giant quadruped which takes its leap of twenty feet with the utmost ease so also we find in the development of birds well-nigh infinite variety in the stage of perfection at which the young animal is thrown upon its own resources of old naturalists were wont to divide the birds into those which could run about and forage for themselves immediately on leaving the egg and those which as mere fledglings required parental care and attention for a longer or shorter period after bursting the shell a young chicken is a much more independent being than say an infant thrush and numerous other comparisons might similarly be instituted with a like result of showing variations in the development of even the animals of a single class it seems therefore correct to say that the term metamorphosis is one of very considerable latitude and one admitting in fact of no rigid definition at all at the best its value is merely relative and those animals may be regarded as really most metamorphic so to speak which leave the egg in an immature state and which through circumstances which it is our business to trace in this chapter have to pass through a definite or well-marked set of changes in form shape and often of size also before assuming the likeness of the parental form if we reflect that every living being springs from a mere speck of protoplasm devoid of all structure which we call germ or egg and which contains the potentialities of becoming what its parent now is or if we further consider that from this speck of albumen there is developed in a few days as in the case of the chicken a creature rejoicing in the possession of a complex system of bone muscle sinew brain nerve and sense organs we may well feel inclined to consider such a transformation and development as thorough an example of metamorphosis as and as a far higher development than that of the insect which attracts our notice simply because it is more evident to our eyes another striking proof that metamorphosis must be after all a comparative term lies in a knowledge of the fact insisted on and illustrated in a previous chapter namely that the eggs of all animals from sponge to man pass through the same stages up to and including a given point at which each group branches off so to speak on its own pathway towards adult and specific perfection thus why one animal undergoes those changes of form we see in the insect and why another does not are circumstances to come to details depending firstly on the size of the egg from which it is developed and concurrently on the amount of nourishment the egg contains and secondly upon the varying circumstances and surroundings of its life as well as on the life and history of its race as temporarily represented by its parent 
Thus a large-sized egg with a big yolk will ceteris paribus produce an animal in a higher and more perfect stage of development than a small egg in which no provision exists for the nutrition of the embryo so much indeed may safely be predicted of the causes which retard or favor an early escape from the egg in the latter case of course let us bear in mind that the young will not resemble the parent animal and we naturally expect to behold changes of form or metamorphosis in its further development and ere it attains to the parent size and likeness. But we must not neglect to note an equally important cause of alteration in form, which, acting subsequently to the escape of the immature animal from the egg, will direct its footsteps in different channels, and clothe its form with varied guises. The surroundings of an animal's life necessarily affect that animal, and in time its race, viewing individual and race as consisting each of an adult being and beings. This much is the plainest of plain truths, but it is equally true that surroundings and varying conditions of life must also affect the young stages of animal existence. Even more marked and powerful must be the effect of outward conditions on the young organism whose frame and constitution, not yet fully formed, are infinitely more plastic and facile than those of the adult. All we know of the effects of environments on living beings teaches us this lesson we know something of the effects of heat and cold of a change of medium and of numerous other circumstances which materially alter the development of both animals and plants natural history records teem with examples of these facts a young rosy feather star antidon may be hurried through its larval stage and may be made to gallop post-haste through its metamorphosis if it be supplied with pure sea-water if, on the other hand, such a larva be kept at a low temperature, and in water not frequently changed, and consequently on a more meager dietary, it will delay in its larval progress. Its development may not merely be greatly protracted and prolonged, but it will attain to a higher state of independent development than before. So also with many insect larvae, and so with zoophytes. The effects of varying conditions on the young and developing animal are plainly traceable. It remains for us to discover what light such reflections throw on some well-marked and familiar cases of metamorphosis around us. The insect world teems with examples of metamorphosis at once striking and interesting. It also, however, illustrates a previous remark that in one and the same class we may find great variations in development and metamorphosis. For instance, we may find no metamorphosis at all in some insects. The lice, the bird lice, and the springtails, Thysanura, thus come from the egg resembling in every respect, save in size, the perfect insects. They simply cast or shed their skin at each successive stage of growth, but no change of form is represented in their development. So also with many insects of higher rank. A kind of day fly, Coleon, is described by Sir John Lubbock as undergoing no fewer than twenty moltings of its skin during its metamorphosis, which is not, however, of marked or distinct character, since the organs of the young animal are simply and gradually changed into those of the adult insect. Even in insects which undergo a much more typical metamorphosis than the day flies, the gradual conversion of the larval parts into the organs of the adult may be witnessed. A young cricket becomes the adult very gradually, and the days of its infancy are not markedly separated from those of its youth, 
nor are these latter in turn sharply defined from the period of adult life. Turning, however, to actual details, we find a butterfly, fly, and beetle, respectively, to exhibit the so-called perfect form of metamorphosis. Each begins life, that is, comes from the egg, after the preliminary stages common to all eggs, as a grub, caterpillar, or larva, which spends the first part of its existence in the guise of a worm, eating voraciously and increasing, as a rule, many times its original size in bulk. Next, this voracious grub settles down and becomes the chrysalis or pupa. Here, quiescence is the order of the day. Sometimes within the larval skin, or it may be, as in butterflies and moss, within a special case or cocoon, the chrysalis passes its existence, which, however quiet and apparently unimportant, externally viewed, is nevertheless marked by a wonderful activity inside. There, the elements and nutrient parts of the larva, accumulated during its season of epicurean enjoyment, may be practically broken down and rebuilt to form the body of the perfect insect, as in some flies, or more gradually changed into the adult organs, as in the butterflies. As Sir John Lubbock succinctly puts it, quote, the change from the caterpillar to the chrysalis, and from this to the butterfly, is in reality less rapid than might at first sight be supposed. The internal organs are metamorphosed very gradually, and even the sudden and striking change in external form, from the chrysalis to the perfect insect, is very deceptive, consisting merely of a throwing off of the outer skin, the drawing aside, as it were, of a curtain, and the revelation of a form which, far from being new, has been in preparation for days, sometimes even for months. Unquote. In the metamorphosis of certain of the flies, for example, the flesh flies, the changes are in reality much more sweeping than in the butterflies, although perhaps less apparent than in these brilliant members of the class. The body of the maggot or larval fly contains, when it leaves the egg, a number of curious rounded structures named imaginal discs. Some twelve of these are placed in the young insect's chest region, four in each segment, and two are situated in the front part of the maggot's body. No change is perceptible in these discs during the caterpillar or larval stage of the fly's life, but when the maggot encloses itself within the last of its skins, which serves it as a chrysalis case or cocoon, the discs begin to undergo a marked development. Each of the lower discs placed in the insect's chest develops a leg and half of the segment of the body bearing the leg. The upper discs of the joint give origin to the upper halves of the segment and to the wings or their representatives, and the two foremost discs are responsible for the development of the head and mouth parts of the perfect fly. As development proceeds, we find a complete physiological breakdown of the chest and head organs of the maggot to be represented. A literally new creature, as to chest and head, is produced and built up from the imaginal discs, the tail or abdomen of the fly consisting, however, of a mere extension and growth of that of the maggot. There is thus witnessed, in the development of the fly, a much more complete series of changes than in the metamorphosis of a butterfly, and this notwithstanding the fact that the changes undergone by the latter appear to be of more sweeping character than those exhibited by the former insect. Let us bear in mind also the fact, already noted, that the developmental changes in insects may be reduced to a minimum in respect that many lower insects do not undergo any metamorphosis at all. Even in the cockroach, belonging to the orthoptera, or grasshopper and locust group, 
an insect familiar enough to warrant its special mention in the present instance, the young possess eyes, feelers, jaws, and legs before they are hatched. They further leave the egg as minute but active insects, whose organs are really molded upon the type of those which the perfect cockroach possesses. The young insect then undergoes seven moltings or changes of skin. Its first molt occurs when it leaves the egg, and its second takes place about a month afterwards. This second molt being performed, no further shedding of skin takes place until a year afterwards, and as but an annual molt subsequently occurs, the insect does not attain maturity till its fifth summer. Thus, in the cockroach, metamorphosis, in the sense in which that term is used as regards the butterfly, does not occur at all. The male insect, it is true, develops wings at a late stage of development, but there is no chrysalis stage and no quiescence, as in the butterfly or beetle. How, then, it may be asked, are the differences between the metamorphoses of insects to be accounted for? On the theory that the development of the individual recapitulates the evolution of the race, it may be asked, do not the facts and differences of metamorphosis in insects seem to present very grave difficulties? There is not that general likeness seen, for instance, in the young of different crustaceans, nor the similarity in development witnessed in the echinoderms or starfish group. These apparent difficulties, however, become greatly lessened or may disappear entirely if we bear in mind the fact, already insisted on, that as adult animals vary and alter, and so evolve new species, so the young and developing forms are even more subject to modification whilst in the process of growth. In other words, let us clearly understand that the changes an animal or plant may undergo are two in number. Firstly, there are developmental changes, or those we have been tracing in previous papers, which belong to the animal as part of its inheritance, and which cause it to travel along the line of its ancestry towards the likeness of its parent. Then there are, secondly, changes which must be named adaptive, which arise from the operation of surrounding circumstances, heat, cold, food, etc., and from the action upon the living being of external forces. These latter are changes adapting it to, it may be, new ways and walks of life, differing from those of its parents and ancestors, remodeling its frame in a novel guise. The young insect, in truth, may be described as living between two sets of forces or conditions. One set may be named centripetal or center-seeking for want of a more descriptive term. These are developmental changes which tie it to its type and which cause it to travel along the beaten track of its race. Then there are the centrifugal or adaptive forces, which tend to make its development erratic, which may cause it to fly off at a tangent, so to speak, from its normal way of growth, and which necessarily cause it to differ materially from its type and race. Says Darwin, in speaking of development at large, quote, many insects, and especially certain crustaceans, show us what wonderful changes of structure can be effected during development." Unquote. A little later he proceeds to remark that whilst similar organs in the young of different animals quote, often have no direct relation to their conditions of existence, unquote, for example, the gill arches of a quadruped, a bird, a frog, and a fish, the case is quote, different when an animal, during any part of its embryonic career, is active and has to provide for itself. The period of activity, says Darwin, may come on earlier or later in life, but whenever it comes on, the adaptation of the larva to its conditions of life is just as perfect and as beautiful as in the adult animal. 
in how important a manner this has acted has recently been well shown by sir j lubbock in his remarks on the close similarity of the larvae of some insects belonging to very different orders and on the dissimilarity of the larvae of other insects within the same order according to their habits of life owing to such adaptations continues mr darwin the similarity of the larvae of allied animals is sometimes greatly obscured especially when there is a division of labor during the different stages of development as when the same larva has during one stage to search for food and during another stage has to search for a place of attachment cases can even be given of the larvae of allied species or groups of species differing more from each other than do the adults unquote. now these are weighty words because they sum up the reasons why admitting a general similarity of early development in insects we should find so much variety in the later development we name metamorphosis they direct our attention to the fact that adult life is not the only period when changes in the constitution and form of the living being occur and they emphasize very clearly the further fact that to changes occurring in the young stages of an animal are due many of the most characteristic and curious details of animal form and growth if we wish for examples of unlike larvae of insects belonging to the same order we may find any number of such instances amongst the beetles some beetle larvae are footless grubs others are well provided with legs some have feelers others want feelers and variations in form are very numerous indeed or among the neuroptera an order including the dragonflies dayflies white ants or termites and a host of other insects the larvae differ somewhat but the pupae or chrysalides are exceedingly varied some being quiescent others active and others again being at first motionless and afterwards moving about it is not difficult moreover to show how very perfectly adapted to varied ways of life different larvae have become the worm-like form of those larvae which live parasitically in the interior of other animals or in plants may attract our notice as an adaptive feature such forms are well represented in the young of the blot flies which pass their existence either within the digestive system of the horse or within the tumors they form on the backs of cattle witness on the other hand the strong-jawed weak-legged larvae which burrow in wood or the well-developed legs of those which feed on leaves and which forage for animal matter compare with these features again the degradation and modification causing those larvae which are fed by parents or nurses for example young ants and bees in the cells of their hives to become fleshy footless inactive grubs whilst as a feature of highest interest it may be noted that the bee grubs do possess at one period of development rudiments of legs which however soon disappear the fact as sir j lubbock remarks quote, seems to show not indeed that the larvae of bees were never hexapod or six-legged but that bees are descended from ancestors which had hexapod larvae and that the present apod or footless condition of these larvae is not original but results from their mode of life unquote. the changes which have converted bee larvae into footless grubs are in other words not developmental but adaptive end of section thirty two chapter twelve the evidence from the life histories of insects Part 1